Welcome back to Let's Break Good, the podcast where we never settle for good enough. A lot has happened since our last episode just over three months ago. The world has changed. Today, a story of setbacks, resilience, and rising to the challenge of a global pandemic. Who became an instant partner in the life-saving coronavirus response project? What stuck-at-home resource fueled a powerful approach to flattening the curve? And what can you do if you're facing unemployment and want to find a way to thrive in the new normal? Let's dig into it. Let's get started. I want to break free. Today's episode begins a few months before the coronavirus took over our lives and news cycles everywhere. It's late summer of 2019. My employer, a nonprofit that I had been working with for nearly five years, had some bad news. My position at the organization was being cut due to dwindling budgets for international public health programs. By the fall, I would be out of a job. It was not a total surprise. Since early 2018, I had seen funding to international projects getting cut the impact of new priorities from the U.S. government, and a rising nationalism worldwide. I had recently started to explore a project working on a public health crisis in my own backyard, the opioid epidemic. But the nonprofit I was working with was internationally focused, so a domestic project was not at the top of their priority list. Facing a job loss, I asked myself what I could do to carry forward this U.S.-based work that I had just started on. I talked to my former employer and struck a deal. If I fundraised for an opioid response project, they would act as my nonprofit sponsor and let me take those funds forward into my own startup. I hustled hard throughout the summer, spending whole days calling up groups in every state and writing proposals to various funders. By August, I had raised over $100,000 for the Opioid Response Innovation Initiative. It was time to formalize my nonprofit. I submitted the necessary paperwork and said a name, sostento, an Italian word that roughly means to uplift, nourish, and sustain. I set our mission to save lives by serving groups on the front lines of public health emergencies. As 2020 began, our opioid response programs were just getting going. It was exciting and rewarding. Then, in the middle of January, my network started to chatter about an outbreak of pneumonia-like illness in China. I was concerned enough to start talking to my contacts who worked in outbreak response. Soon, I started to see disturbing videos online out of China, and my worry grew. In early February, I made a tough decision, slowing down on the opioid response efforts that we had just got going and pivoting my attention to the new threat that had still not yet become a full-blown emergency in the United States. A lot of people I spoke with doubted the virus was going to be a big deal in the U.S., and didn't understand why I would want to put my energy there. But I stuck with my gut and began with the question, how prepared were frontline groups in the United States for a potential pandemic? After discussions with health providers and officials, the answer was clear, not at all. My past work on Ebola, bird flu, and other outbreaks taught me the principles 
of early detection and early response. With limited testing available in the United States, we couldn't do early detection. Without that, there would be no early response. As February came to a close, it was evident to me that we would not avoid disaster and that a major initiative was needed to prepare for what was likely to happen next. But what could I do? My nonprofit was still in the startup phase. I had a very small team and no staff or funding to work on coronavirus. There was one group that needed help immediately, free and charitable clinics. These clinics are community health safety nets that serve the uninsured, unhoused, and those that cannot afford care. Charitable clinics are less likely to have the resources and infrastructure like a hospital or a large medical facility might have when responding to a pandemic. During coronavirus, charitable clinics would be incredibly important because any individual who might go undiagnosed or untreated could spread the virus further, and the population served by these clinics were likely to avoid a government facility or a doctor's office unless it was an emergency. At the same time, the charitable clinics had limited protocols or informational resources they could rely on to use for their operations during the pandemic. There were only various unverified documents on the web or those on government sites like the WHO or CDC that contained language and jargon not suitable for those with limited knowledge about coronaviruses. So with a colleague who was running a charitable clinic in Atlanta, Georgia, we launched the Coronavirus Support Network and started writing up resources for clinics adapted from the best evidence-based information we could find online. We put it all together and uploaded it to a website. In a matter of days, we had hundreds of people come to the site to grab the resources. By March, that was in the thousands. While this felt like progress, talking to more clinics led to uncovering a challenge that no written document could solve. Clinics needed help answering the phones when they were incredibly busy and when people who normally would answer their calls were not able to be physically in the clinic. Why was this dangerous? First of all, Anybody who calls into a health facility for assistance and does not get their call answered is a person who's not getting the help they need. With COVID-19, when someone with mild symptoms or someone worried about exposure doesn't get their call answered, they might do the next logical thing, travel into an emergency room or walk in health facility, even though they might not need to. That might unnecessarily expose them or others to the virus. We looked out on the market at available telephone solutions for community clinics, and nothing could really solve this challenge. The elements of a solution were available via a company called Twilio, which could provide a foundational software tool that we could build the system we needed. After creating the first version of an automated answering service, we realized though, it could not be just a computerized voice because that without the assurance of a real human being, individuals calling were likely to still leave their home and seek out help if they did not get the answers they were looking for. According to my collaborator who ran the Atlanta Charitable Clinic, there were people emailing and calling her about how they could help. She asked me that, look, I can't have them come into the clinic. That would be too dangerous. But is there a way to have them answer their calls from home in an organized way? The answer in my mind was yes, we could. If we populated a real-time spreadsheet with caller information taken by an automated system, then a group of clinic staff or volunteers could use this shared spreadsheet to make callbacks as a decentralized team, each from the comfort of their own homes. With all the informational documents we had created for the coronavirus support network, we had a head start in developing a script 
that had answers to common questions. We had an idea, but we were still pretty much unfunded besides a small bit of funding that one of my donors had said I could reallocate from an old grant. That was no more than a few thousand dollars. To get a technology system like this to work would usually take many months. There would be a period of fundraising, followed by design, development, testing, and finally rollout. But the system was needed now. Who would help me build this? And who would answer the incoming excessive calls to the clinics? I had a few former freelancer colleagues who I had worked with over the years who were willing to offer a little bit of help. They were stuck at home anyways because of the lockdowns that had just been put into force. And so of course they could spend some time on this. We posted about the project on a volunteering website, helpwithcovid.com, and the response was crazy. We had dozens of technical volunteers ready to help us build the system and hundreds of individuals ready to help answer the phone calls. One posting into a nurse's Facebook group got us over 200 volunteer signups. Many were school nurses, their students now learning from home. They were available and just the type of person you'd want answering helpline calls. The volunteer team came together in an instant, and in just three weeks, we were ready to deploy the system, which we named Helpline SOS. On March 20th, Helpline SOS launched in Atlanta. The results were immediately amazing. Dozens of calls were coming in, and people were getting help to access things like drive-through testing, telemedicine, and getting evidence-based advice on how to prevent the spread and recover from mild cases. Here's an example from the first week that the system was deployed. A 31-year-old called in experiencing mild symptoms consistent with COVID-19 and was looking for a test and doctor's note because an employer at a nursing home facility required it for them to not come into work. They called their doctor's office, a hospital, and a state health department, but after hours on hold, they were told each time they did not qualify for a test and that their only option was to come to the emergency room if their health status was critical. In a last attempt to get assistance, they tried calling the clinic. After leaving their information through Helpline SOS, a rapid callback came from a volunteer who was able to get them qualified for a drive through test and emailed a note by the clinic provider that would allow them to not have to go into work and put a vulnerable group at risk to COVID-19. Stories like this were repeated again and again through April and May. Recently, our team was awarded funding to expand Helpline SOS to 25 clinics across the United States, something we are already making progress on. I'll continue to share more about this project in the podcast as it develops. What can you take away from the story of rapid startup and success? First, some motivation on what you can do if you're finding yourself newly unemployed. You may not have the network or know-how to fundraise and launch your own business, but there are plenty of ways to get engaged in something new. There are meaningful volunteer opportunities to get affiliated with that might just end up hiring you in the future. Start with a rapid reflection about what purpose you want to have and what skills you want to put to work. Don't just slightly update your resume or CV. Take a critical review, think about who you want to work with and what type of work you want to get involved with. Then get to networking. Many of us being stuck at home mean there are a lot of people who are available to talk. Tap into your resilience. If you do that, you will succeed. Second, when a problem seems huge and you're overwhelmed by it, that means it's time to get focused. Don't try to be everything to everyone all at once. Don't try to solve numerous problems. Get to know that one problem you want to solve inside and out. When I started up the Coronavirus Support Network, there were a lot of directions we could have taken it. 
There were emails and calls for assistance that I could have tried to serve, but instead I referred them to other groups. I decided early on that for our initial phase of work, we had to focus on just the free and charitable clinics due to our size and available resources. Lastly, this story should tell you that we all have a part to play in breaking the coronavirus. What powered my initiative to get off the ground were volunteers. There are so many stories of individuals stepping up to volunteer, sewing masks at home for healthcare workers, doing food delivery services for the elderly, offering free school tutoring, and more. The pandemic has called on all of us to flatten the curve for health workers and save lives. Most Americans have given up their daily routines by voluntarily staying at home and social distancing, sometimes at great cost. While there are governmental stay-at-home orders, and not everyone has abided by them, most Americans have. In the months ahead, the world will continue to respond to the pandemic, and then we will deal with the aftermath of COVID-19. We need this spirit of innovation and volunteering to endure. The future of our communities and neighborhoods depend on it. That's our episode today, and I want to show my gratitude to everyone who made it possible. The episode was recorded on Zencaster, hosted on SoundCloud, and shared on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. It would have not been possible thanks to our editor, Simon Green, and our producer, H. Cap Clote. I owe a lot of gratitude to Brianna Lathrop and the Good Samaritan Clinic in Atlanta, Georgia. They are the clinic that helped us to develop, pilot, and prove the power of Helpline SOS. Thanks also to the Georgia Charitable Care Network and Robert Wood Johnson Culture of Health leaders that assisted in refining the vision for this project. A big shout out to the volunteers who stepped in to help. There are too many of you to name, but you know who you are. Thanks also to our funders who helped seed the project and a big thanks to the Sustento startup team who made Helpline SOS happen by working 24 seven over that three week period. We also received help from the team at Twilio, specialtwilio.org, and thanks for their support during the startup phase to get our technology working. In the weeks ahead, we will keep our focus on coronavirus, but not exclusively. We will continue our interviews with extraordinary individuals you may have never heard of, while also exploring new stories of doing good gone bad. We hope you can continue to join us. Until next time, I'm Joe Goda, and this is the Let's Break Good Podcast. <laughs>